Marquise Richards is a multimedia creator, host of the Rational Anger podcast, formerly known as This American Negro, and co-hosts, wait, well, uh, well host of the Rational Anger podcast, um, and co-host, you and co-host, aim to bridge the gap between academia and the hood. You also host Dear RDG, or Dear Reading, a podcast about the people and city of Reading, Pennsylvania. You're also a writer and filmmaker, releasing To The Mountain back in December 2020, which discussed your journey as a content creator and it's on your YouTube channel, aptly named Marquise Richards. You can also find a collection of your interviews, which discuss um, everything from the human condition and politics to being surprised that which people don't wash their own clothes. Um, that's all on your YouTube channel. So, <laughs> that, that, have I captured everything there, Marquise? I think you did. That was a pretty dope <laughs> intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me, my guy. <laughs> More than happy. So, Marquis, actually, you're here today because essentially you invited yourself, which I think is, I love that. And you wanted to argue with me. That was in the message, you know, when are we going to disagree? When are we going to argue in each other's podcasts? And honestly, I'm here for it. So if anyone's listening, take that as an invitation to invite yourself on by reaching out. <laughs> the socials are at Omar on Instagram and Twitter, or you can send an email to a culture of algorithms at gmail.com. Throughout this discussion, Marquis will be speaking. So if you find anything that you agree with him on that, where can the people find you, Marquis? Uh, you can catch me usually in the Twitter streets, most likely um, at Marquise Davon. So that's M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-D-A-V-O-N. You can catch me on Twitter, Instagram. My social media handles the same across all platforms. So we out here. <laughs> Beautiful. And if people love you so much, can they support you financially? Is there like a patron or anything? Oh, yes. And if you want to support me in my other podcast as well, you can also do so by heading to patreon.com slash Dear RDG, that's going to be the main one that we're going to be utilizing. There you get some exclusive video content, um, some old videos that we have um, either released or haven't released yet. And, excuse me, just access to a couple more things as well. Um, but that's a really cool way to do so. So if you want to pay at least $2 a month, I appreciate that. Um, but if you want to go up and, you know, $10, $15, I don't complain about that either. Cool. <laughs> but we're in a pandemic, so I know people struggling. So if you just want to listen and share out, then that's fine too. <laughs> so thoughtful and again if you're from the uk you know cash in on that that um that transaction rate and the the, the stronger pound you know you help support marquis you know it's not going to cost you as much so just think <laughs> about that you know think about that but um but yeah and marquis even though i've known you for about the past years as i started podcasting researching you for this episode i realized that we have a lot in common that that surprise especially on a personal level so we both have step parents we are yep. both from multi-ethnic households and we both grew up in bad areas about, and those areas are places that we want to change the perspective of. Um, we both want to work in higher education. You currently work in teaching. That's something that I'm looking to go into, or at least education more broadly because of, mm -hmm. well, there's current government cuts to media funding and that's exactly what I want to do. So I'm thinking of a way around that potentially. Um, we also have a similar wants for our communities. Um, I mean, even our podcasts try and make academia more accessible. Right. And that's, you know, without mentioning that both of our degrees, I even found out earlier this year, all have the same title. And yet we're here today because we want to disagree. Um, right. <laughs> I, maybe if we were not going to comment book or something, we were like destined to be mortal enemies because of like, what it was. And in British cultural geographies. But, um, but yeah, anyway, welcome to a culture of algorithms. I, I know it's early where you are. So how are you this morning? I, I am doing really well this morning. Um, the morning is like my favorite time when I don't have to actually interact with people. And so like, I'm, <laughs> I, I tell you, I, no, no, you, no, no. This is the time where I can interact. I purposely okay. get up at 6, 6.15 in the morning 
So this way, by the time I go into work by 8 a.m. anyways, so I'm good. I can I can engage with people for the most part. Um, but yeah, no, I get my morning routine. So I stretch and I breathe. I make my coffee, catch up on whatever news I need to listen to in the morning. And I write down some affirmations and I call it a day. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And it's the weekend, but my body doesn't believe in sleeping in. So <laughs> <laughs> the body's anti-rest. It's honestly and truly, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter what time I go to bed, I will... I'll be up at 6.17 or my cat will be meowing at my door. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, wake up. Where's my right. food? Right right now. <laughs> so um, I invited you on. I did prepare some questions and some discussion points, you know, mostly, mostly based around, as the intro says, about your multimedia creative output. Um, but you wanted to come here. So what were your expectations for this conversation broadly? Yeah, I know we like jokingly um, go back and forth in the group chat and whatnot. Um, but I'm, I'm excited just because I really enjoy the way that you're able to deliver content and then also deliver information. But then also like trying to figure out like, all right, what does Omar really think about certain things? We never I don't think we've ever fully like dissected an idea together or a concept together the entire way through. So I was just like, hmm, I wonder what this would be like, especially because we have similar missions. So like, how our approach is going to differ in terms of like how we approach this, but then also like, what are some very similar, like what are some similarities that we're going to have too? So I'm, I'm just curious. I think you are a brilliant human being. I really enjoy listening to your, to your podcast. Um, Flattery <laughs> so will get you here. everywhere, Marquise. Flattery will get you everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll delete some of the, the nasty questions now. <laughs> Period. <laughs> but no, actually, you know, I completely agree. I think one thing I've um, been looking at more broadly, especially in 2021, you know, pandemics made, made me think more about community and solidarity and how solidarity comes with sacrifice sometimes. Um, but the reason I actually invited you on and not just to, you know, waste my listeners' time or either of our times, and as much as it's great to talk to you, um, I, you know, this podcast is about media consumption, the cultures they produce, the societies they leave behind. And you are a content creator who comments on culture, has a vision mm -hmm. for its future, but is also very knowledgeable about the past. And so in that regard, it was kind of a slam dunk as to why I would invite you on. Um, I'm, I'm even going to say now, because you flattered me, you know, I put this in the script anyway, but you are genuinely one of the most perfect guests to have on the show. So, yeah. Um, Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. So in researching you again, what one question that did come up to me was, is Their Eyes Are Watching God your favorite book? No, it's not, surprisingly. <laughs> I'm genuinely shocked. Because it's in your... Well, you've got you've got an episode dedicated to it on rational anger. I think that's the most recent one actually. Yep. Um, in April, you've it's also in your interviews. Um, when you were announcing that you're going to be making your film, it appeared there again. Um, it's in some earlier episodes from back in 2017 and earlier. Yep. And I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> this book just keeps coming up. And you, like, what's the deal with that? But enough, fair enough. So, um, what is it about that book that kind of really appeals to you then? It's um. That was a book that we had to read in high school, my senior year of high school. And for me, I remember that might have been one of the first indications that though I grew up in a predominantly black and brown community, it was one of the first times where I was just like, oh, but there, there's still a difference there with people of color, growing up with people of color, though we're all in this very low income area. Even a lot of students were just like, oh, I don't know why we, why it's hard to read this book and why we got to read about this and why do they talk like that and da, 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 da. And it was interesting for me because I was like, if you just read it out loud, it's, 
it's what it sounds like, like you will be fine. But that's the moment when I realized like, oh, they think that this is a language barrier, but coming from a lot of, coming from a space where English is a lot of people's second language, I would think like, hey, we have to read this out loud in order for it to make sense, right? And so that was one of those first instances where I was just like, this is a book that is really meant for black people. <laughs> like, this is something that's really meant for us because right after that is when we ended up reading Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin, which is my favorite book. But um, yeah, it was that moment where I was just like, this is an author who is creating somebody, creating a character that is completely out of the norm of what we were used to or what we were exposed to growing up. But then also like upon reading that is really when I started to really pique my interest of like, oh, there are differences among us and that that's fine, but there is a bit of like, mm, but how much you're actually invested in black people. <laughs> um, so that's really what it was for me growing up. I remember me and my other black friends were just like, yeah, this is, we like it, but these other people are just like, not even putting that effort into wanting to understand it. Yeah, because um, I think on your episode, you you highlight, I think, I think the film might even be in your film, where you highlight that the book is kind of written in what we would understand as AAVE. Yes. And so people are reading it and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. And you're like, read it out loud. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's all it is. I do, a, I do a workshop on AAVE and then their eyes were watching God, but I use it as an opportunity to make sure that kids are able to start seeing themselves in different areas because i'm just like rap music hip-hop like that's ave it's just written in a written in a pattern written in a rhythm um but knowing like there's still uh a beauty in the way that we speak and there's also history in the way that we speak our language is political so like knowing like that was something that was put out there and we didn't have to be the magical negro in order to appeal like Zora Neale Hurston said, nope, y'all, this is for us. We know what this we know what this sounds like. Everybody else, that's on y'all. <laughs> you gotta yeah, do put, work to understand. Putting some work, yeah. Now yeah. I think I think I think that's definitely a great point because um Patois has the same limitations in terms mm -hmm. of um being able to be translated by people or at least accessibility in reading. Right. Um and I guess that's one of those things when people don't respect your language that they they don't take it, they don't put the effort in seriously when it's then written down. But um bringing up black and brown communities. Dear Reading, Dear RDG, if you're searching it up as a listener, is a podcast about the goings-on in the small city of Reading, Pennsylvania. So, and I did have to search this up, not Reading, Massachusetts, Reading, Alabama, or even Reading, Berkshire here in England. Nope. Um, nope. <laughs> now, on it, you actually talk about a lot of the cultural goings-on about your home city. You know, you feature artists, educators, activists. I've seen some journalists and other personalities. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about their creative processes, etc. So, my question is then, like, why did you choose to focus on the creativity of Reading in Dear Reading? Yeah, it was, oh man, that was super important to us when we were first starting it. It's going to be three years this year, which is wow. crazy. Um, yeah, it was important. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for us, it was really important because the local media wasn't doing what they needed to do. Like, I went to school for broadcasting and stuff like that, so... Mm -hmm. I understood like there was a certain aspect of like how media can shape culture, how media can shape perspective on a lot of things. And oftentimes they were able to do the thing where <laughs> let's let's highlight the worst things. So this way people can come in and um, watch it or learn more about the city through the lens of violence. And for me, when I got to college, everybody was like, you, you went to Reading? Reading High? You made it? You survived? Yeah, if you don't get out of my face. Um, 
So it was in that moment where I was just like, I want to reclaim this narrative. So let's start highlighting the positive that's going on or the spot that's not as well known in the city either. And so in that moment, I was just like, this is what I want us to be able to do. And then um, I, I tried to do that while I was in my senior year of college. So I'm still applying the jobs. I'm still <laughs> trying to get my <laughs> fight my senioritis and all of this other stuff. Um, but it ended up um, stopping for a little bit. And then it came back in the, as soon as I graduated, I was just like, let me actually do this thing like for real, for real, my first year out. And we rebranded it to be essentially more black focused rather than my, the first iteration of Dear Reading had black and Hispanic people on it. This one, we were just like, let's focus on it, onto being just simply for black people. And then from there, um, <clears throat> it started to build out this following, but that was really the intention was like, let's, let's talk about our culture because we only make up 8% of this city, which is 80,000, 88,000 or whatever the number is um, for black people who made up the city. And we were just like, let's make sure that we still get our story out there. And so from there, we were able to tackle local news, local politics, but then also highlights people and, and non-black people from the community as well. Uh, which I thought was like a very important thing. Come to find out now, like, hey, <laughs> we're an yeah, award-winning no, podcast. Like, we out yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> congratulations. Because, um, I mean, to, I'm going to ask you to put some context as to what the city of Reading is like, because when I was Googling, I stumbled across your Wikipedia. And then the first thing it focuses on is its origins and then crime. And it's just yep. crime, 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 crime. And then I, I research it and it's, Crime capital is from like you know, 2006 or whatever it is, or back in the 90s. And then it goes, um, your podcast. I'm like, okay, well, what else is there? And then it goes slowly filters down as to there's, you've got like the local newspaper, then you've got some yeah. other act activists in the area who then come up on, on Google. So like, what is the city of Reading? What did it used to be known as? What, like, what, what is that, that crime narrative? And, and what have you done now to begin to change that perspective? Because I do think that you are changing it, especially if you're the second... Um, result on Google for crying out loud. Oh snap! I did not know we were the second result on Google. I'm yeah, you are, you're on my Google anyway. You're on my Google. Don't the algorithm save other people. You're on my Google. Yeah. Um, no, I think like Reading is historically, <laughs> historically Reading is a socialist area. If you want me to be uh -huh. honest, it's a factory <laughs> and union-based um, city, so it's a lot of industrial work that was happening there. Um, and so it's definitely like that, but. Reading is a space where redlining has happened, communities were broken up, but then also a lot of um, flight happened as well. There was like a disruption because once the factory jobs started to slow down, people started to look for work elsewhere or they decided to start leaving. So as that started to happen around the 90s and 2000s, Reading was predominantly black and white. And then um, a lot of Latino people started to come into the city of Reading, either from New York coming up or coming straight over Dominican Republic, Mexico, um, Puerto Rico, Colombia, that's what a lot of our demographic actually um, relegates down to. And so in that also came a destabilization because now you're just like, oh, well, where are these families that were investing in this community? What is going on? There's still a lot of families there. There's a lot of history in that city. But I think along with that destabilization meant that survival had to start happening as well. So Reading had like a big drug problem, you know, the 90s, that's <laughs> the crack epidemic. People were struggling to figure out what that looked like. People were coming in and out. So Reading kind of became a little bit more transient in that perspective. Uh, but when my mom talks about it, she was like, yeah, no, like everybody knows everybody in Reading. Reading is a small city with a small town kind of feel to it. Um, but I think in that, 
a lot of people became a lot more recluse and a lot of people were just like, I, I just need to survive and make it. <laughs> and so I think Reading is also the pocket of where a lot of black and brown people are living, whereas like the outer ring is all white. So, um, or affluent, whatever, but white. <laughs> when people go outside of the city, they're just like, oh, now I feel safe, now I do this. So I think the narrative came along when out of racism, honestly, and xenophobia, because oh, all these, all these, as people call them in the city, all these Puerto Ricans started coming in, all these Mexicans started coming in and taking our jobs and da 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 rather than thinking like, no, there's a reason that people are migrating to the city. Um, there's a reason for that. But I think as Reading developed, there was a lack of infrastructure. There was a lack of identity and culture. There was a lack of a lot of this. And I don't mean like the individual ethnic cultures. I just mean as a culture of the city. Um, so when that lack started to happen, I think that's when crime started to also just start to increase in a certain space because people needed to survive. That's what the system forces people to do. So whatever the government deemed as crime or criminal, that's what they're gonna ultimately do. So they were able to get undocumented people. They were able to get people who were on the streets with drugs. They were able to get these people, but they were never able to actually rectify what the actual issue was from an economic standpoint. And so for me, I think a lot of that crime started to really take a peak and like gun violence is a thing that happens in our city a lot. There was gang violence, there's drugs, there's addiction, there's all of these things that kind of go into it, um, which is where Dear Redding kind of came in. We were kind of able to name those um, with a little bit more nuance. The news we know has to do the who, what, when, how, where, all of that kind of stuff, rather than being able to add perspective all the time because it might come off as bias. But Dear Redding as a newer platform was able to kind of name these things, but then also get to the crux of like, cool, y'all said that, now let's add to how this got, how we got here. <laughs> let's add to what this actually is in reality. And so I think that's a little bit, I hope I gave a little bit more context of kind of like the cultural aspect and how it kind of led into um, where Reading is at today. And then ultimately how Dear Reading kind of plays a role is kind of naming these things with a little bit more of a critical eye. No, I think that's perfect because again, in trying to better understand why Dear Reading exists, one thing I definitely got the the feeling of is that, you know, the politics in your local community wasn't up to scratch. It wasn't willing to fund into people or even incentivize businesses to come in and supplement those jobs that were, you know, being moved out into the wider Pennsylvania state apparatus, right. as it were. And then it almost it was kind of sad because when I was looking at you know your, your city, small town city. Um, from like a, a numbers perspective, it almost seemed as if like the the crime element was almost disproportionate. And I was like, hmm, I'm wondering here if there was, you know, if, if there was an element because the, one of the unique things about Reading is that it's Latino population is the dominant, you know, mm -hmm. almost quite significantly. And I was wondering, you know, is there a, um, again, because of that, that affluent suburb area around it, were they like trying to make an example of the inner city? I wasn't too sure. Again, I'm not entirely familiar with Pennsylvanian mm -hmm. um, <laughs> politics there. So I was wondering if you like anything new about that further on, or it's just a question that has to be answered later on. Yeah, I think that is something that might have to be answered a little later on. Because um, I think Pennsylvania as a full entity is basically Alabama. <laughs> I'm not going to hold. Like you have Philly, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg in the middle, and then everything else is very country. <laughs> yeah, a lot of forest. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, yeah, because even that, like, um, I think I was watching a documentary by uh, NFL Films or 30, was it? 
ESPN's 30, 30 was it? They got 30, I don't know what it's called, but basically these documentaries, right? And they're talking about like um, how Pittsburgh um, and Philadelphia were, were not the nicest areas to live in, even though they were the best place to live in Pennsylvania. So I was like, huh, scratch my chin as it were. Like, what's going on here? Oh, um, yeah, you see, just look at the racial breakdown and see if there's an association. <laughs> con- let's not put a conspiracy hats on, but... But that's also, I think actually, I think that needs to bring us on to the next question I had. And that's because whilst you do look at activists and artists and educators and like the creative process of Reading. Um, Dear Reading also looks at, you know, bigger picture discussions too. I mean, in the last year, especially as, as you said, you've kind of like looked more like black people and centered black people around the creation of the podcast. You managed to like really dive into topics like, you know, friendship and community. It, was, it might mm-hmm. seem superficial as if you look at the titles, but then you watch the episodes or listen to the episodes and they're like, wow, okay, this is, you know, there's a reason why this community exists as a community. Mm-hmm. When you look at like capitalism and anti-blackness, you don't even you know tackle police funding and brutality. But also, rather interestingly, and this is something I've not seen in a lot of city-based podcasts or shows. You look at the school board throughout 2020, <laughs> and I was sure like, do. "Why are you looking at the school board?" Um, but then, like, have you found like your position has like somewhat changed over the last year, especially in terms of your politic, how you perceive to see yourself. Um, or have you found yourself more entrenched in your beliefs and, and what are they exactly? Yeah, yo, I, abolitionist through and through. I'll tell people that right away. Abolitionist, get rid of the shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think we've, I, I always say like, at least the role of the podcast definitely shifted in 2020 because of everything that was going on, because of the protests, because Dear Reading has always been talking about these issues. We've been talking about the anti-Blackness. We've been talking about capitalism being trash. We've been talking about these things. And it's not like I ever coached my team into believing any of these things. Like we all came with different perspectives on like, hey, we all have different educational levels. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different like experiences on life. So let's just see what it's like to get such a rounded about kind of perspective on our city. Um, but in that, yeah, I think there has been more of a radicalization of our listeners when they are listening to the podcast because they're just like, wait, something is not right. And at least Dear Reading is able to name it. People are looking at us for um, information and they really come to us as a credible news source, which is wild to me. So now we're on media list. We're on these press releases. We're on these things. Um but I think a lot of people realize like, oh, Dear Reading touches a demographic that we might not always be able to touch. Um, people use us to come on and do their like media tours and whatnot. So like, yo, we got, we want to talk about this or we have to bring this up or, hey, I'm running for district judge or I'm running for city council. Can we come on and actually talk about our position? This, that, and the third. Um, so I think it is definitely a space where I definitely became a lot more entrenched in my beliefs and I definitely solidified those a lot more uh, specifically around being able to call out our mayor, being able to call out city council, being able to call out the Reading school board. We're able to do these things and people just know like, all right, if we are calling them out, like there's a reason that they are getting called out, but also trying to find a way to call them in. We've had the, we had um, people from the um, Capitol sit in on conversation when we have a town hall based on what happened to George Floyd last year. Um, but then also, actually, no, this was Ahmaud Arbery and our local mayor didn't have a, didn't even do the decency of doing the bare minimum of just sending out like, hey, black people, we stand with you, rest in 
peace to Ahmad Arbery, blah, blah, blah. We know these things are going on. He didn't do any of that. So Dear Redding was just like, since our mayor doesn't know how to address race issues, let's actually get into this and actually have a conversation because he's not doing what he needs to do. So he will always avoid the conversation surrounding race and how it intersects with policy and how it intersects with our community and all of this. So more and more, I don't have no picks. I think I just became a lot more blunt. I didn't try to keep it cute anymore for these people. <laughs> so they starting to see like, nope, you're trash. You're an idiot. Like, you don't need to talk about this. I don't care. Like, that's just the point where I'm at. Cause I'm like, we're, you're playing with a lot of people's livelihoods and they're just like, well, Marquise, you got to make policy. No, y'all are the ones who are in power. You should absolutely be doing your research. You should absolutely be making policy and you should absolutely always be in a constant state of learning, but you're actively choosing not to. Um, but again, he's also a former cop from New York. So you get what you get. So, so wait, is he from Reading or? Cause again, no. that's the one thing that was kind of, kind of a question mark around your mayor. Um, yeah, so he's originally from New York. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, so he was working in law enforcement up there. So what's, what's the story? How did he end up in Reading? Do you know? He ended up Just coming down for family and then he moved down here. Um, and then he just stayed. And so he's just been a resident for the last like 30, 40 years. See, that's, that's amazing because like 20 years, whatever <laughs> in, in, in British politics, that's what yeah, time is. Time is a social construct at this point. Like he, 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 I can't keep track of, of this week. What is time? <laughs> this, this pandemic inside your house all the time. What is time? But I think that's a testament to Reading as a community, I think, because, um, for someone to not even be from the area, but then to be, have a position of power within it is something that is contested in wider American politics, is contested here in the UK. So to welcome someone to that degree, I think is somewhat a testament to Reading, but to also to kind of contextualize for my listeners as to why Reading would be, or dear Reading would be part of the media circuit or seen as a credible source is that whilst I do find a lot of you speak from the heart, um, it's not, senseless like it's a lot of your positions are well researched i i i will admit there's times i've sat there with a notepad and gone okay what can i contest here what are the points that i need to kind of mm. take away from it i'm like oh you know what actually now that i, I looped back on previous episodes it kind of all makes sense so right. i'm not surprised that you're now part of that media circuit but um speaking of um ideas then do you find like your position personally of abolition is somewhat difficult to reconcile with how you platform political advocates or is or is abolition more of a, a longer term goal and you kind of see that there's like a lesser of two evils idea currently then oh that's a, that's an interesting question um yeah i think for me it's it's still a long-term goal i think so because i think people don't do well with like very radical shifts very immediately though i want to overturn everything <laughs> the tables um, <laughs> yeah I don't think a lot of people are there for that and I can also recognize that like I want to be able like I think the educator of me wants to just give people the tools and kind of know like yo here are the tenets of abolition here's what we've already been doing and we just put it, didn't put a name to it um, kind of situation but I also reckon it right back to our history in terms of the Angela Davises of the world the Lorraine Hansberry's James Baldwin's um, Malcolm X's and all of these people is really just like yo let's take a critical look at this but again I don't think I also recognize like coming from a low income area, I also have a privilege to be able to speak on these ideas a bit more. Some people are just trying to get by. People mm -hmm. are just trying to survive. So I do recognize like, as I'm putting in this fight for abolition and wanting to make sure our people are radicalized as much as possible, I can also recognize, cause I grew up in this. I grew up in a single parent household. 
we just want to make sure we have food in our fridge. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not worried about policy. I'm not worried about these things long-term um, because I just need to get by. I just want to make sure I make it to the next day. And so I think with a lot of this is um, now we're just in the space of using this platform to still educate, using this platform to still challenge and agitate. Um, but I think just from a local standpoint and a political and activist standpoint, I think it's also difficult um, especially because we're making content around this. And oftentimes I, I always feel like it's like twofold um, because there's this very annoying marrying of capitalism and activism right now that's mm -hmm. going on and the performance of it. Um, but then it's also just like, we want to ensure that we're getting out to the people. So I'm also in the boat right now, like where I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I build out this week, week long abolition camp, <laughs> right? <laughs> and trying to figure out like, all right, let's actually give these kids the tools that they need and actually provide them with the language or at least provide them with the space to, to see these ideas presented and then be able to see how they can move mobilized from there. I don't think it always makes sense um, because we do have a local government that doesn't necessarily align with abolition. They don't align with the black radical tradition. There are no black people on the city board, right? So for us, we're just like, hey, there are still these ideas that are there. So a lot of y'all are conservative. A lot of y'all are business mind oriented. A lot of y'all are just family people. Y'all are very likable, but you're not, but you have to understand your role as a public figure is completely different. So I think that's the part of me where I start to challenge these systems because I'm just like, if you have a direct power source over our life and political power over our life, you need to make sure that you are benefiting the most marginalized of the community. And I don't think that they have the intellectual or cultural capacity to do so right now. No, fair enough. I think I think for me though, um, when we talk about abolition, I so, I somewhat struggle with it, mm -hmm. mainly because I'm not entirely well read. Yes, I've read Angela Davis. That's probably, if I'm going to be honest with myself, probably the, the limits of it. Um, yeah. Because again, the literature out there is not going to be about abolition more generally. Um, no. It's it's so it's one of those things where like it's almost like a bit like capitalist realism for me, where I can't imagine a system almost where there isn't some form of um enforcement and then retributive power there to be like there's no restorative justice like oh yeah that that kind of stuff doesn't is not going to exist right now i think um mariam mariam kaba she does a really good job of it i think she has a book coming out of just showing people like yo here's part of what abolition is what abolition is and then also here's transformative justice versus restorative justice and all of these things. Um, so there is a, definitely a digestible way, an educational way to do it. I think that just provides a little bit more interrogation because I think a lot of people can read about it, uh, but having to live that every single day, I think that's the difficult part because you have to um, change the way that you think and you have to actively be thinking all the time. And I think sometimes that that's not a capacity that everybody wants to have because that requires us to do work and consistently do self-work. <laughs> um, no, you're, yeah, you're completely right. Sorry to cut you there, but yeah, you're, you're completely right because yeah, for me, one thing I do notice that when I, even when I see snippets of abolitionists writing, I'm like, you know what? There isn't, there isn't anything objectionable here in my personal opinion. Um, if you, if you grow up in a, a quasi-Christian state, the idea that you can forgive everyone and that there is a, a chance of redemption is somewhat ingrained in your, or is supposed to be ingrained in your belief. So for me, I read abolitionist texts and I'm like, oh, you know, this actually makes sense. And then, but because I haven't quite made that transition fully, um, and hey, maybe at the end of this podcast, I, I've changed my mind, <laughs> but um, there is an element there that it's like, 
I would support abolition abolitionist movements because there is almost like um, I kind of see how what's going on right now is a sort of negotiation, right? It's that enlightened centrist idea where you know one end goes, everyone has to go to jail. I don't care if you look at me wrong, you're going to jail. Other end is no one goes to jail, and then there's mm-hmm. a negotiation that's going to happen somewhere in between where you go, hey, look, let's make prisons a nice place to be because like we, we want people to come out and never want to go back again, kind of thing. But not because they're too scared to, but because they're not going to do the the, the conditions as to which they went there don't exist anymore, kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's kind of like my. That's transformative justice right there. Yeah, (laughs) that's what that is. That's a tenet of abolition is really trying to figure out how do we transform this thing? Because prisons don't actually like deter crime at all. It's not a proper Mm. deterrence at all. Um, So when we think about prison abolition, we think about the conditions of prisons. You think putting somebody in the corner, did you ever get sent to a corner and you learn your lesson? (laughs) Think about what you've done. What what do I begin to think? Like, cool. Oops. Like, what is that? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? I can't name the harm that was done, or I can't give you the reason why I might have had to rob this spot. Because when you get, when you break it down further and further, this person's probably hungry. This mm. person's probably irritable. So by the time this person had to had to get this thing, the cops are probably just like, oh, well, you got an attitude. Now you're talking back. Now you're this. Now you're that. And then you get into prison, and now they're expecting you to be able to say, all right, you deserve five years in prison because by the five years, you're going to know exactly what you did and you're not going to redo this harm. No, that's not how that works. It's yeah. not. <laughs> you got to be able to be able to provide people with stability, provide people with um, tools in order to get better. And they don't want to do the mental health practices. They don't want to do um, actual therapy. They don't want to do healing. They don't want to say like, when this person gets out, we need to make sure this person is set up for success. And that's not what people are looking for right now. People are just saying, you did a bad thing. You need to be put in a corner and you need to be put away because this is exactly what that is. That doesn't actually help anybody because are they going to still recommit this crime? Because potentially, yes, some, a lot of people, no, I don't want to go back to jail, but sometimes jail is better than outside. Like these are very real things that are going on. So um, that's stuff that I know me and my dad talk about all the time is just like, no, here are the conditions of what it was like for him in prison. And then also like, here's what it is now, but that it's a trash system that doesn't actually want to transform, but they just want to make sure like, cool, we're going to keep you on this hook because I can bring you back in and cash in on you. Yeah. I think, I think what you highlight there is where I begin to struggle not because, because I actually agree with you. One thing that when you look at the data anyway is that violent or low-level crimes are more typical crimes. The ones that get you sent to, you know, almost like a not quite a federal level, but sometimes you end up at a federal level because you've committed a murder they're gonna, they're gonna or give across crazy times. Yeah, let's throw a little sprinkle of felony in there. But a lot of the people are committing crimes out of necessity. It's when you go and look at like white-collar crimes, so they go, you know, I wanted a yacht by the way, and you go, you didn't need a yacht because yeah, but I could have got one if I scanned all these people, and then. And I think right there we see there's almost a difference in like people committing crimes, whether they're, they're drug related crimes or, you know, violent crimes, um, almost everything apart from sexual crimes, from my understanding, whether that's a robbery or sometimes even a murder, you know, robbery gone wrong or something, kidnapping. It's because of they had, you know, things at home that need to be taken care of. And it's, it's almost quite scary, at least here in the UK, the number of crime related incidents that decrease one's access to food banks um increases which just tells me right there you know there's a correlation there between people being hungry and people stealing so if you you know take care of that food aspect hey someone else isn't going to get robbed this week so 
Yeah, that's um, what it is. Think about it. They celebrate Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's band of merry men steal from the rich. Okay, okay, buddy. <laughs> but um, but speaking of politics, actually, and you highlighted this earlier with um district judges. I think you said um coming to the podcast. You also got um city councillors or a yep. city councillor came on. And currently, I mean, even still in April now, Reading is going through an election, election cycle. And yeah, you've invited on those candidates to interview them, kind of flesh out their platforms a little bit more. Have you ever questioned, or do you question now, your role as a media practitioner and its <laughs> role in the political sphere? Yeah, more and more. Um, because Dear Reading was, especially our last mayoral candidacy, they really looked at us, they looked to us for a lot in terms of conversation, of terms of people that we're bringing on. And in terms of like, we we were, one of one of the city council people now had said, Dear Reading is the reason that I voted the way that I voted. And so I realized in that moment, like, oh, we shifted, we shifted an election, <laughs> right? Our podcast had the podcast. <laughs> yeah, which is, it, it's wild to me too. Um, we have people coming on and because we criticize like the local media, Hey, do we got to capitalize the B in black when we use it? Yes. <laughs> do we, do you, do we use proper language here? No, you didn't. So can you make sure you refine this language moving forward? Because here's how it could be harmful. Um, but even from a mayoral standpoint and a policy standpoint, we got a lot of blowback too, to be honest. People are just like, well, you can't just have your one perspective on. I said, I'm not going to, I'm not about to put on a harmful perspective on this platform. I refuse. I said, you get conservative news everywhere else, not in this black ass area. I refuse. <laughs> and so that's kind of the role. I think a lot of people need to understand that more and more. And I think oftentimes people are just like, I want to hear the arguments on podcasts. I want to hear the disagreements on podcasts. I want to do this. I don't want to hear people saying yes. I said, there is a difference between having yes people. And then we can take this idea and we can now tackle it from different angles. We can all agree, but here's how we can... I interrogate an idea together and I don't think a lot of people are trained necessarily on interrogating an idea together they normally relegate it down to just oh I think we should all just agree no if we're going to talk about gentrification <laughs> some people talk about the economic benefits I'm talking about the cultural implications of what this means another person might talk about why somebody may want to gentrify an area so there are different things that we are able to see and tackle it from different points. But I don't think a lot of people find that necessarily entertaining all the time because now it turns into, this is like more like a class, like here are the different tenets of what can happen of gentrification if that were the topic. And now let's flush it out a little bit more there. So I think sometimes um, it makes people nervous, um, but it also bothers a lot of people. But then also we have the mayor sometimes and his team attempting to discredit us. We've been called corny before. <laughs> We've been cor we, you, you corny. Y'all ah! no, corny for that. Like that's my that's political education. Ah! <laughs> like, and that's, and that's what it is because they're just like, why are you, because of the aspect of how Reading works, it's a small town. So any attack on any of our political people feels like a personal attack. And I'm like, no, I am talking about the public figure. I'm talking about mayor Eddie Moran. I'm not the person he, a bubbly human, he's a very nice human. I've had lunch and breakfast with him before. I've, I give this man hugs. Like, I appreciate this man. But as a political figure, absolutely not. I don't think so. You're going to get this conversation and I'm going to critique you, whether you like it or not. But that's part of my role now. And so, yeah, I think my role has become a little bit more significant in that, in that regard, um, of terms of like amplifying platforms, but also 
challenging somebody. I have somebody coming on who used to be a um, constable. <laughs> and I'm just like, so you were putting people in the paddy wagon, sir, but you want to be a judge. How's that going to make mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. So these are the conversations that need to be had. Um, and sometimes people are scared to ask those questions. I'll still be able to be cordial, but then when I have to ask like, yeah, so what are you doing for the black community? <laughs> like uh, our last, my last two interviews, they didn't properly answer that question. If I want to keep it completely honest, like the judge or the city council person and the one's Afro-Latino, one's black. And I felt as if still they're, they're in this space of not being able to say this is explicitly for black people. And I get it, you're trying to build your platform, but if you're coming onto this black platform, I'm going to ask you those questions. No, that's beautiful because like in that criticism of people saying, oh, we want to hear the arguments, we want to hear both sides, we want to hear something else, you can't just bring one voice. What you've highlighted to me is something that I've been trying to like convey as an idea, and maybe you disagree with me here, but that our democracy relies on non-democratic institutions. And in that respect, people saying, I'm your audience. I want you to give me what I want. And you go, no, 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 this is dictatorship on this, pla on this platform. This is what I'm going to tell you. There are other places where you can go. Um, and in, yep. in a more tangible, in the more tangible sense, corporations and businesses are not democratic spaces. There is one person who makes all the decisions or a board who makes decisions for everyone else. And they would then put funding into a candidate that you may not just, you may disagree with and you work at that company. Yep. And so, but through that funding, the democratic process continues to happen, that continues to exist. And yeah, um, I do find it quite interesting that you've been explicit in saying, hey, look, we're going to platform what we want to platform here. Um, and if you listen to us, that's what you want to hear <laughs> almost. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it is. You came to us for a reason. Um, mm. And that's what it is. Like I told people, but even and it's little stuff too. Oh, I feel like an hour and a half is too long to have a podcast. All right, you can go to a 20 minute podcast. I don't know what to tell you, but our listeners who decide to stay on, listen to the majority of our podcast nine times out of 10. So that's exactly what we're going to continue to do. Nothing's going to change. So you either you're with us or you're not. And they still end up with us anyway. So it's really just knowing like we were able to shape a culture because now a bunch of podcasts are going to pop up in the city and they're ranging between an hour and an hour and a half on their shows, sometimes too. Like you listen to what you want to listen to. We're the socially responsible platform. If you want the problematic podcast, go for the other podcasts that are there, some are informational, some of them are interview based, but just know we're always going to be pro-Black first and foremost, and we're going to be in a space to uplift and interrogate. See, that's in, again, that has kind of almost looped me back to something that you said a little bit earlier, and that is the idea that people don't like, oh, we, we, this feels like a class, feels like a lesson. And it's almost like saying, you know, I don't want to learn something, which I think is quite interesting, especially when talking about politics and the, the like, these are like in your local areas or these are people who are going to make direct impacts on your life whether that is in, in, install a new parking meter or a row of parking meters mm -hmm. but you can't park outside your house or your business or you have to now you know budget out an extra i don't know how much parking is in in, <laughs> in redding but like an extra sometimes when i make ten dollars a day five dollars a day there we go so that, average, yeah. and, and again, if you work in a, a working class neighborhood that's going to impact you quite significantly i mean for context i spend about 30 pounds so if you did $30 equivalent in, in the US, if I had to then say like, that's a week. So if someone said that would be their their, their budget of a day, you know, is $10, $10. That's, that's a big difference. And that's something that right. your local representative is going to do. So, um, but, you know, thanks for, I think we'll come back to this because I quite like um, Dear Reading. Even I'm, I've never been to Reading. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'll <laughs> enjoy it. Um, but. Um, I want to look at your film briefly or talk about your film more accurately um, to the man and you referenced it earlier um, the title comes from a James Baldwin book 
Um, why did you choose to focus on or document? I should really say because it's documentary. Yeah, document your creative journey. Um, I, 2020 was like a year where I realized I was doing a lot for other people. Um, <laughs> and like, that's just the role of the, like the activist and the educator and stuff. Your role inherently has to be able to help a lot others. But I was like, I want people to also see me outside of the educator, the academic, the activist. Um, and I want to see people, I want people to also see me as like, yo, I'm still a creative person. Like <laughs> I, I still want like that aspect of things to, um, be very prevalent so I wanted to talk about like where did a lot of my creativity stem from and kind of give a little bit more of a robust conversation of who Marquise is Marquise Richards is not Marquise Davon the entity <laughs> um and so for me it was cool to like peel back that a little bit because a lot of people were able to see my motivation I got to be a little bit more transparent about what it was like for me growing up because oftentimes I keep my business to myself like you get what you get I'll give you that <laughs> and then keep it pushing uh, but for me, I wanted this to be a moment where Marquise Davon was able to just be Marquise. Um, and then also give people a little bit more insight to my psyche in terms of like how I approach different things or my why behind different things. That's why I reference theater so much. Like theater is really the crux of what I do. Like, um, and then also reading and honestly, just making it a little bit more transparent and acceptable. Like I want people to be okay with um, developing their process. I don't think we give enough space for that. And again, that's the social media era. Like we see the finished product, but we never get to see like, yo, like what were some things that were hard? What were some things that like you had to pivot or mistakes that were happening? I let people see the rough draft of my documentary. Like, <laughs> and that was fine. Like I want people to be okay with, um, specifically black creatives to be okay with knowing like, yo, we don't have to black excellence ourselves to death. I want us to be able to have space to learn. I want us to be able to have space to grow publicly. And that is fine. It's honestly the reason why I like Saweetie. Like, if I want to be honest, I enjoy her because she, in interviews, she's just like, yeah, no, that was trash. I was a trash performer. I, I need to get better at my craft. But a lot of people are just like, oh, well, she got pretty privileged. Well, no, but she's also actively working through something. And she, we're going to watch her get better and better and better as she does. But a lot of us as black people sometimes don't like seeing us as the work in progress because that means the white gays are gonna be watching. And if they do not, G-A-Z-E, um, if they're okay. if we're <laughs> worried about <laughs> that. Real quick. Yeah, I should have like, like, wait, no, gays. Even I did it now. Yeah, sorry, continue. But I think sometimes we operate from that lens so much that we don't give ourselves enough grace and we fall into this, you got to work 10 times as hard to get half as what they got. And we can't ever just produce something that could potentially be mediocre. I don't like to call people's work mediocre like that, but it's also just like, yo, this, it wasn't my best, but this was the starting point. Writers all start from somewhere. Thinkers all start from somewhere. I, I was a dancer. I was as stiff as a board when I first started dancing. <laughs> Like this is, it is fine. Um, but I don't think that we allow for that grace sometimes because when we get into the public imagination, we have to be 10 times as good or have the most perfect things to have the most culture bending kind of experience possible. Cause if not, we're, we're a little bit too tough on each other. We don't allow for that um, as much or allow people to grow. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Like that's really what the intent behind the, um, to the mountain was, was to kind of see like, all right, who, who am I? Like I was the main subject, obviously. And you can see how my different relationships kind of impacted who I am today. But then also from a creative space, like that's really where I draw 
a lot of my stuff from. Yeah, I, I, I do see that in, in the documentary, um, but also how you how you just referenced it now, like the idea of almost black mediocrity, where like mm-hmm. that can and should exist. I like, just have fun sometimes. Yeah. Um, but one thing that that does actually bringing it up now reminds me of is this idea that in our current almost online constantly online digital age we are almost expected to be perfect straight out of the box and in not being perfect there's you know the criticisms that come up whether that's colorism or pre privileges or whatever is um whatever new criticism can be can be thought of or an old criticism that comes back into public consciousness um is that something that you then kind of combat then and like do you want to support the idea of black mediocrity um and just make that possible or is that not quite or am i I misunderstanding you there a little bit oh no you're absolutely right i think um i i think that's the danger of social media too like i think social media allows us to present certain aspects of ourselves and when we do those those are usually the most extreme versions of ourselves i think we like to all put out the most ideal idealistic version of who we want to be um, and so when we get that, we end up trapping ourselves. So for me, I'm just like, yeah, at one moment I'll be talking about let's dismantle white, white supremacy, patriarchal capitalism. And then the next sentence, I'm just like, yeah, I go up for the Carters just like that. You see the office <laughs> in my background. Like, <laughs> I think that there's, there's that gray space. I said, they still represent something for me. Now, obviously they're both capitalists, so I don't bang with that. However, I think artistry and what they did for the culture is also still very important. So I think we are not used to that space, that gray space or at least we don't like when people are able to name it. Cause they're just like, Marquise, I don't know how you can, how you can go up for Jay-Z the way that you do. Uh, because Jay-Z actually art, artist wise does some amazing things. However, business wise, garbanzo beans. Like he, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an individual in what he looks for. I, I, can, I know how to discern the two. So I'm still gonna enjoy him as an artist, but I'm not gonna enjoy him as an activist. And that's fine. He's a philanthropist. That's what he can do. He can stay there. Um, but I think it's sometimes um, hard for people to kind of do that because again, I think mediocrity means that there's room for improvement. Black excellence means you've already reached your peak. <laughs> and I think we need that room for improvement because we're all work in progresses. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to have more of. Like, I want that to be promoted a lot more. I want people to see that there's nuance in a human being. And I need us to start realizing like, yo, we are multifaceted, but because the way our mind needs to put things into boxes a lot of the time, this shit doesn't compute for us. So I, yeah, I think um, social media definitely creates more of a binary than it does allow for um, this exploration of self and knowing that people are allowed to be multifaceted. Now, for our listeners, you reference that Beyonce is right behind you right now, but you also have a book on your shelf. Um, So for those who are listening, what is that book on your shelf? And what's the one right behind me? One right behind you right now. Yeah, one on display. (laughs) <laughs> the America, the America play and other works by Susan Lori Parks. She is one of my favorite playwrights ever. She is a black womanist uh, playwright, and that goes back into your almost quite neatly into your 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 upbringing in in theater, or at least your passion mm-hmm. for it. How have you seen theater um, weave its way into your creative space? Because I mean. There is some dancing, there is some music in your documentary, but it's not mm-hmm. you dancing or playing the music. So mm-hmm. what, what made you like cut out or make space for musical artistry then in your documentary? Or is that something that you see in your life where you go, you know, I have to make some space for some dancing and some music right now? 
yeah, no, thank you for asking that. Um, I, I'm very intentional about this. I don't like, I don't like things that are straightforward all the time. That's not how I operate at all. I love things where I have to, I have to do homework on a piece. I have to dig a little bit more into what this means. So immediately when you open up my documentary, it's somebody playing the djembe. It's my high, it's my senior year roommate, senior year college roommate playing the djembe over the ocean, over the, well, it's a lake. Um, and it's really dope because I wanted that space to be very natural, but the djembe, um, that piece was inspired because of my creation. The djembe represents a heartbeat. A heartbeat is the first instrument that you hear when you're in your mother's womb, right? So that's the first piece of rhythm that you're hearing as you go through. And so as they are going through that rhythm, I wanted that to symbolize what does creation look like? Then water is just another sign of like renewal. This is a space of washing over. This is the space of cleanliness, purity, and you have room to grow there. And there's a sense of freedom over there. So I think children are innately creative. And then this is like the beauty of what this means because you're creating something either biologically or you're creating something from your mind <laughs> and making it a real thing. For my education chapter, I referenced W.E.B. Du Bois's um, The Soul of Black America. Um, and that's also something that I thought was super important because it was just like, here's my reflection of myself. And that's why I'm sitting in the mirror. That's why I'm walking with the book. I'm in all black for that specific scene because it's now it's a different space of what it means to kind of be walking through the street, but also walking through the street with a book. And then the last scene uh, was liberation. And I think um, jazz music is one of the purest black American specific musical genres that told the story of our pain first and foremost. So when I would think about who was the most honest in terms of like what we were going through, it goes to your Ella Fitzgerald's, it goes to your Billie Holiday's. So I wanted it to be a very imperfect saxophone piece being there because at least you can hear the pain in that piece. You can hear the struggle in that piece, which is why I didn't want like a perfect recording of it at all. I said, if there's accidentals in there, there's accidentals in there. Cool, keep it pushing. And then I had it where you had to actively look at all the black people that I that were part of this project. You had to look at them. And I wanted it to, it didn't get to where I fully wanted to be, but I wanted to pull that Barry Jenkins, like I'm having a conversation with this camera. You have to acknowledge me as I look into it. But you got to see black people looking away, looking uncomfortable, shrugging their shoulders, staring into the camera. Um, but it, for me, the theater plays a role in that because I want it to be um, as experiential as possible. And so when people ask those questions, I'm able to say like, ooh, and they're like, oh, that's how it connects to what you were saying in here or this concept that you were exploring in these three different chapters. Um, but it allows the piece to be much more engaging for one another. It allows us to kind of talk and tease out these ideas a bit more. But I love um, taking the conceptual and then also applying it to real life. And I think um, John Steinbeck, if you ever read, um, I think it's called The Grapevine, um, he does a really good idea of this because he'll take, there's a turtle crossing the road, <laughs> but then he'll see how does that actually apply socio socioeconomically as well, time, culturally yeah. as well. Yeah, so I think that is just a very beautiful way to display this conceptual idea because it's still artistic, but it's still able to communicate this idea when I'm just kind of giving it to you straight. So. Yeah, and that's also my background as a dramaturg. Like, I have to be invested in the world of the play to inform the actors. But then afterwards, when the people have, when we do the Q&A or the talkbacks, now they're just like, well, why'd you make that directing decision? Oh, well, why'd they say it this way? I can now give you real world context as to why we did it the way that we did. See, 
I'm, yes, that's, that's beautiful. Because one thing I was, um, when I was watching it, because um, I knew the djembe was uh, symbolism for heartbeat, or at least that's this kind of like mm-hmm. mystic origins. I'm going to use the word mysticism, and that's something that's going to come up yep. in a later episode. It's not necessarily a myth in terms of what needs to be debunked, but it's a way that we should think of something as it's created. But again, different time, mm-hmm. uh, different time for that one. But what I thought of it was, was like, again, with the water, I thought of it, because again, it's right at the beginning of your documentary. I thought it was, and again, because it's about your life, and how you create, I thought it was more like a birth scene, almost like the water breaking kind of yep. thing. And I was like, ooh, but then I was like, oh, you know what? That's me, maybe me overthinking it. But then you've given me this English teacher um, breakdown of the symbolism of your own work. And I'm like, you know what, fair enough, let's go. <laughs> yeah, but that, but again, like your interpretation is still extremely valid. I just want people to recognize like this is idea of birth. This is an idea of something new coming. Like this is a new beginning. So that's exactly... So your interpretation is just as valid as mine. Like that's what I want my work to be able to do is cause a conversation and make you think about these things. Nah, fair enough. So you brought it up a little bit earlier again, um, but is there a distinction or is it a separation between Marquise Davon and Marquise Richards? Talk us about that. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Marquise Davon, that's when you're going to get like the podcaster, the activist, the educator, this person. Like if you need me to communicate very certain ideas, this is how I, I can also present that. Now, Marquise Richards, he wake up in the morning, don't talk to me. <laughs> I need my coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm, but I'm even more goofy in real life. Like my kids all the time, oh, Mr. Richards, you got ADHD? You be going everywhere. Da, 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 da. I'm just like, I crack jokes. I'm very much so like that. Um, but that's also the part of me that like my close friends also get to see. I think I can give part of myself to the world because that's a platform that I created. And I want to give more of myself because I think people need to see like, yo, here is a nuance of Marquis. So that's why I did the documentary the way that I did, because now that was a shift in how I presented myself on social media as well, because it was like, yeah, I'm still giving a mask. <laughs> like, I'm still going to give you like, hey, they know when they come to my page, I'm probably talking about dismantling a system. I'm probably interrogating, cussing out white people or talking about Beyonce. It's one of them you're getting on my page. <laughs> you know what's going on. And so like when that also happens, they also, I wanted to share more of like the fun parts and the goofy parts. Like me and my roommate, we we are goofballs. Like I'll, I'll get on TikTok and do some dumb shit. I'll be able to have some fun conversation. I'll be able to play with my cat. I'll be able to be ridiculous. So I don't have to be perfect all the time, but I want people to realize like, yo, that's keys. All right, boom. <laughs> so in that case, Devon is less about it being a, a caricature, a caricature or a character it's I guess it's more like it's a representation of your ideals more so than who yes. you are. Okay, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair thing. I, I have media representations all around us. And hey, this is a media podcast. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna use keywords. Okay, we're gonna use things okay. like media representation. So, yeah, no, I like that. Um, speaking of bashing white people, um, and your own background there, you focus on blackness yet blackness isn't the only part of your identity mm-hmm. how do you manage to i guess marry i guess would be the, the worst but best term to use here how do you marry your multifaceted identity with your black activism then and yeah, why so yeah well i think like i'm also puerto rican like my dad's from puerto rico he was a maroon we come from a family of maroons um from our space. So I think, again, we're still black on that part of the island anyway, so we out here. Um, But I always ensure like, yo, when I'm doing stuff, I have to make sure that my liberation centers 
the most marginalized of a black person. And for me, everybody else inherently gets help. So once you help the dark skinned, fat, poor black trans woman, and there's more even disabled and all this other stuff, when you're able to dismantle, when you're able to help them, everybody else inherently gets helped. So for me, I said, no, you help this person, you now are helping all of these people who may be experiencing one of these intersections. And that is fine. And that's how I move in my world. That's how I move when I create events. That's how I move when I speak. That's how I move when I'm in these different spaces. And I'm always doing the work of just like, yo, this is where that is. So yeah, I think that's how I have to reckon it from a um, liberation standpoint, a liberatory standpoint. Nah, this is why I center Blackness before I center anything else, right? But then moving forward outside of that, when I reckon it with my other identities, I'm just like, yeah, this is also part of me, but that's not the most marginalized part of me. Right. So that's okay. kind of how I kind of navigate from it. I see. That that makes sense in that case. And so I guess we now go on to the not so fun parts, the bits that might get you a little bit in trouble. You've talked quite a lot about community. Well, I've talked about community on your behalf, but Dear Reading's about community. Rational Anger talks about community and Black communities. Right now in this episode, you talked about community. You've also talked about dismantling patriarchal, capitalist, white supremacist systems. But that keyword there is capitalists and being anti-capitalist and anti-white patriarchal. How is it mm-hmm. to, what is it like to be a non-capitalist? I'm going to, ask, I'm going to start with a nice soft one. What is it like to be a non-capitalist in America? You know, the, the undisputed king of capitalism in, in, in our current right. world. I think it's difficult. I think a lot of times because we're so indoctrinated with these ideas, like for us as black people, we have, we, we tend to, at least we have, because we're under this very big system of capitalism, we have to play a part of the game in order to survive. And so I understand when people are just like, no, capitalism is actually helping. Cool. As an individual, but as a culture, I don't think so. But if this is what you need to do to ensure that your kids are eating by the end of the day, do what you need to do. Are you surviving at the end of the day? Do what you need to do. However, when there are people out there on the front line, when you do have these thinkers who are telling you otherwise, I'm anti-capitalist. So even the work that I do and any funds that I make, get re get invested into community. Like I'm selling mugs. That's going to black businesses. That's going to black people who are in need. If I need to volunteer somewhere, that's what I'm doing. So anytime that I make a profit, I do from at least my creative ventures, I try to make sure I reinvest that into some part of the community in some way, shape or form, or at least if I gain a new piece of knowledge, I want to ensure that I'm also doing that knowledge sharing because I don't think that that should be gatekept because I had an opportunity to go somewhere or I had an opportunity to read a book or I had time to do this. So that's kind of how I have to operate in an anti-capitalist kind of nature for me, Uh, but that's not for everybody. In that case, what are you pro then? If you're anti-capitalist, what, what, is there an ideology? Is there a socio-political system that you then adhere to, or is it more you know what you don't like, and therefore you're working out what you are, what you do like? Yeah. Okay. So for me, I, I know I align more with socialism. To be, <gasps> no, just kidding. Oh, okay. oh, goodness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my <laughs> gosh. She's a socialist. <laughs> Turn it off. Cut the cameras. <laughs> like what you don't see right now. I'm gonna turn my camera around, but like Fred Hampton is right here. I look at Fred wow. Hampton in front of me. I'm looking at the um, 1618 project over here. There's a lot of like very pro-black kind of art pieces that I have, um, but it's also just a reminder for me when I'm looking at these pieces, I look at him every day and I'm just like, this man was a threat to people at the age of 21, 20, 19, 18, because 
Um, he knew how to tackle a system. He knew how to rally your people. He knew how to do all of these things. And oftentimes what I've gotten as people started to get a little bit more irritable with my anti-capitalist statements um, was just like, well, you can't be one of them and save them. No, there was a poor people's march. What are you talking about? <laughs> there was Fred Hampton exists. So these same people that you prop up all the time, your Malcolm X's, your Martin Luther King's, your Angela Davis's, your um, socialists. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so when you think about all of these people that you revere so much, so you want to use their name and invoke their name, but you don't believe in what they were actually standing for when it came to how Black people were supposed to get free. You don't know how this is impacting policy. So us saying defunding the police, you don't realize that that comes from the Black radical tradition. Oh, got it. So you just like it for the name. You don't actually like what they were about and their whys. And that is the exact difference in terms of like why I will challenge people in terms of like, do you actually know what this was? Do you do you actually believe in what they were talking about? Because if you believe in what they were talking about, there's part of you that needs to be challenged in terms of like how you operate in this space, whether it's in regards to money, power, and privilege or race. We gotta we gotta have a conversation. So for me, I make a lot of people uncomfortable. My platform has made a lot of people question their own blackness. <laughs> and I tell people there's not one way to be black. However, there is there are certain ways to be pro-black. <laughs> Um, I think that makes sense because, um, I mean, we I have to be honest with you. In the last how long have we been we've been recording, we've been teetering on the edge of is Marquis a socialist? You know, you talk about Reading being a socialist. You said that was, that was your opening statement, pretty much. Yeah. You talk about how you've swung elections and people have been radicalized by listening to your platforms. Um, in that case, did Reading? socialize you into being a socialist or did it radicalize you or is it you leaving reading because i know you now uh, you're now in um uh, philadelphia if i'm, if I'm correct yeah. you're now in philadelphia did philadelphia radicalize you did it socialize you what what happened there what made you go i can't do i can't deal with this status quo anymore and he, i i think there's a better way to do everything yeah growing up i think it was growing up in the city of reading um was part of it my dad was in prison for 24 years of um his life and so I only met him two years ago. Um, so there was part of me where I was just like, what was so bad that he had to be in there for 24 years? What was his why of having to be there? But then it was also, as I thought about those questions, I also thought about like, my mom was just like, you just need to get to school. You need to graduate. You need to go to college. You need to get this job. You need to do this. And so for me, I was always the quote unquote golden child. So I got my straight A's all the time. I made sure I took all the hardest classes. I made sure I was in the extracurriculars. I made sure I, I had a job. I was burning myself all the way the fuck out. I got to college and that's really where I met like white, white people. Like I was like, oh, oh, Reading, we're all brown and poor. Like I, even the poor were pretty decent. We weren't always around them, but they were pretty decent. <laughs> um, and that, to me, that was interesting because it was in that moment. That's where like getting stopped by the cops in my hometown. That was one thing. Um, but getting stopped by the cops while and this is where my mind was shattered my freshman year or sophomore year, one of the two. It was right after I came back from the Czech Republic. Um, I was walking down to the to the bank because I worked at I worked in the um, college president's office. I was his administrative assistant. And I was going to pick up some funds for him. And I'm in a full suit, got the Susquehanna tie on, went over, picked it up. And then as I'm coming out of the um, spot, this cop comes right, it was a bank, and then the police department was right across the street. They turned on their signs. Woo, 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 woo. Came over. What business do you have at a bank? What? Excuse me? 
It's a bank. It's it's America. <laughs> make, it was a bank of America. That's the sad part. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so in that moment, I was like, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. I'm still nigga at the end of the day to a lot of these people. So I'm in a full suit. I'm, I'm a college student, but you still question why I move the way I do or why I did this. So in that, that was the catalyst of me starting to grow out my hair because I said respectability ain't saving anybody. I'm doing everything I need to do in playing y'all system. And obviously that's not working. So my freshman year, um, coming back from the Czech Republic and seeing and studying abroad for the first time, and then going right into that being my experience coming back, I was definitely looking at people completely sideways. And then obviously the election happened and that really just took me to a spot where I was like, nah. But um, yeah, the, those were a series of events. It was studying abroad and seeing America from a different perspective. It's coming back and being stopped by the cops. And then summer 2016, or 2015 when Alton Sterling was killed, I was interning up in New York and I was just angry and I was traumatized and I was by myself in, in that big city. And I remember going to Mark Lamont Hills. Um, he had a talk for his one book, Nobody. Um, and it's somewhere on this bookshelf somewhere, but I keep that book with me at all times. Um, but it talked about the injustices of Ferguson and Flint. And so that's when I realized, oh, there's an anti-Black state sanctioned violence that we are all dealing with. And now I was able to kind of put a name to it. So he was one of the first like true Black academics that I got to really see in person and was just like, thank you for adding language to something that I did not understand or I didn't know how to put into words. So that's really where it was. Summer 2016 was my real radicalization of a lot of things. It's amazing because in my own research of what was going on in America in 2016, one thing that I've seen is that for a lot of non-white people, they're radicalized towards more community-based activists, whether that is you know Marxist or Marxist-Leninist, socialist, mm -hmm. communism, even just you know non-titled community action groups, and then you go online and you see quite a lot of white people getting radicalized towards the far right and it's like what was going on in 2016 for mm. for all of those things to kind of be churning and i guess you know you can't just look at 2016 in isolation you know there is you know eight years of an obama presidency that was coming to an mm. end you then have an openly fascist <laughs> invoking <laughs> presidential candidate who was becoming populist who then radicalized um, a lot of his his base to what is now you know 2020 or 2019 2020 sorry 2020 elections my goodness I keep thinking I'm in 2020 the 2020 mm -hmm. elections is the biggest in U.S. history where it was close in terms of um states and, and numbers but it, it wasn't close to you I mean four million is another country in and of, in and of itself in terms of votes right. but it's just it's crazy because in, in a weird way you almost like a, your, you your experience is almost like a cookie, cookie cutter in terms of trauma drove you to look for answers and those answers in improving your social conditions for socialism mm -hmm. which is something that again you're you're a college student again they go oh, the colleges are radicalizing our young people that's and that's their biggest argument there's like everybody goes to college and it's too liberal it's too radicalized like, shut up no because a lot of y'all who are investing in these colleges are still very much so conservative yeah it, it's, it's a tough one i mean because for me i didn't go to university or stay in university when i was 18 so I don't, I, part of my, from my personal perspective, I don't think it's necessarily the, um, the age, well, it's not, it's not necessarily the environment that radicalizes you. Um, 
I mean, at least for me, my journey in terms of learning about more social and community-based activism began in school because I kind of had to. But that's for now besides the point. But I think what's quite interesting there is that um, I think you want to interject real quick so you can jump in. But um, yeah, even uh, my 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 pops like. Me and him, our first conversation outside of here was like Asada Shakur's politics. <laughs> like, I th- to me, I say, I think um, in prison, Black people are some of the most educated people I've ever met in my life. Incarcerated folks are some of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life because they are reduced down to the lowest of, like, they are stripped of everything, of their identity for the most part. And now they're reading, they're finding different religions to um, go into it in order for them to survive. They're doing a lot of these things because that system forces people to become radicalized, whether they want to or not. Malcolm X was in prison when he truly became radicalized, right? And so, and uh, James Baldwin barely has a middle school education, high school education. Like, there is a thing about life and experience that will also do it, but it's a something. There's a moment where your identity is broken down and there is a powerlessness where you're just like, oh, I don't ever want to feel this thing again. So how am I going to kind of navigate this a little bit more honestly in a way that more people, if I'm going through it, that means I'm not the only one. And I think that's the key of what it is. I think most people are stripped down to their lowest of like taken away of all their rights and lowest forms of identity are able to rebuild in a way that's much more pro-black. Some people change their names. Some people are just like, let me make sure I dismantle this thing and never happens again to anyone else. Yeah. Um, which actually, I think, neatly transitions into the ideas that we have around higher education and what we want from it. Um, because, yeah, I think we both see that there is a, a social conservatism going on in higher education that is, I'm going to, I'm willing to argue, far more dominant i'd say it's even hegemonic whereas the radical anything is very much marginalized whether that is you know the radicalized right in terms of eugenicists who turn up in conversations in 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 our stem classrooms or in sociology and they argue you know about you know race and iq race realism or if it's people who want to argue for abolitionism whether that is in gender abolitionism prison abolitionism um class abolitionism and I don't use the wrong phrase of ideas analogy because I hate it, but there is definitely a, um, a, the people who are making headlines are not the, the, the dominant <laughs> or even the, 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 the majority of, of students, but we both want to go into higher education to teach. And my question to you then is because you have to hide it a little bit earlier on, but why do you want to teach at higher education? What, what is it for you that makes you go universities, colleges, I'm going. Yeah, um, I think there's a little bit more freedom in what I want to teach. Um, I think right now, me as a teacher, I I got to teach what they give us. I don't get to have that freedom of building out my own curriculum. I, I Some parts I do because there's like this new thing with socio-emotional learning and cultural competency and all of this. So I get to like design my lessons on how am I going to talk to these Black children that I am teaching? <laughs> like very much so. Like I got to talk about the most recent shooting in in America. So like like what is happening here are all the facts now let's take time to imagine reimagine public safety and so hearing kids be able to reimagine like yo this is what i want to see oh this is what the cops aren't doing here they're supposed to do and here's how it doesn't add up and now here's what i think they could be doing instead as an alternative to their job that was super cool to me like i i love 
I love education because it's supposed to be curiosity. I love higher ed because that's when we get to take a lot of chances. One of my professors, um, Dr. Michael Thomas, he did philosophy and hip hop. So he ended up doing an entire class out at a Starbucks after and this, mind you, this was after black men were kicked out of a Starbucks um, in Philadelphia. He decided to talk about how Kendrick Lamar won a Pulitzer Prize and Beyonce won a Peabody Award for Lemonade. And so when he had those conversations, he was like, I purposely decided to have this class in Starbucks because we are now witnessing hip hop get a Pulitzer Prize Award, which is a white institution. So what does that mean? Lemonade, another very culturally black American piece was very much so got a Peabody Award. What does that mean for Beyonce to disrupt this? And now what does it mean for a black professor in this white institution to be teaching class in this Starbucks where we are not invited into as well? And I said, now that shit right there, I wanna do that. Like that to me is so cool um, because it's experiential. It adds context to so much more. It's a freedom to have engaged in these different conversations. And I know I want to do, I want to do something with um, theater for social justice is what I want to really be able to teach. Like, yes, let's look at these made. Let's look at these ideas. Now, what does it mean in the real world context? And now what is drawn on stage? And now how do you interact with this piece? because now that's going to reveal so much more. Cause I still to this day will say, theater is the purest form of storytelling that you will ever get in your life because you now need to step into this character, understand their why, why they make decisions. How are they moving? How do you release your entire ego to get to, and it's probably the blackest form of storytelling if I keep it a buck. Cause we're to, we're, we tell our stories and our legacies are in the oral tradition, the griots, like that's how we tell our stories. So theater to me is one of the purest forms of doing that. And I want us to interrogate that a lot more. And so that's that's what I wanna do in academia. I think there's a freedom that we get to move in that space that I can't do when I have to make sure, are my kids passing the PSSAs? Are they passing these state tests? Are they doing this? To me, I think that's janky in terms of education because your people, intelligence is different. Like people have different forms of intelligence. I don't think at schools, um, K through 12 anyways, sec secondary schools and early ed schools necessarily give our kids that freedom to explore their true potential. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I, I agree with you on the jankiness because even when you even have like the, the founder of the SAT says, you know what, standardized testing doesn't work. And as a person you created it, you go, you know, uh, we're kind of on a week, we've kind of got a weak foot in there. And then again, more and more literature comes out to say standardized testing doesn't work. So yeah, it's a shame that um, I guess educational policymakers aren't pioneering that. But um, one thing I want to ask you then, in that case, is if theatre is the the purest form of storytelling, why do you want to focus on social justice in that case? Because surely, do you want people to relive that trauma? Or no, not necessarily. And I, that's definitely difficult too. I'm uh, I'm about to pull up. What is it? Right here, one theatre of the oppressed, and how that kind of helps to build. Empathy is one of them. And then, yeah, over here. Ugh. And then also, <laughs> Strange Fruit um, plays on lynching by American women. Um, so for me, when I, when I read this, I took a theater and violence class. And absolutely, it's absolutely triggering in some spaces. Um, 
but for me it's not necessarily these things that are necessarily going to be like trauma induced like we don't always have to do a lynching play in order to understand like the social justice aspect of what they're trying to talk about like i there i have a theater of genocide right down there as well um but I think it's how we are able to convey these ideas by different choices that we make on stage. And so even if it is still a lighthearted play or a lighthearted musical, let's break down what this musical is actually talking about. <laughs> like, let's use this as a tool of education. And so I think oftentimes, it's why I love pop culture so much. Like pop culture is a small insight into what culture could be, or at least it's a, a larger, a, one event that can add to a larger conversation. And so even if it's not the most oppressive play in here, I can, like James, not James, um, August Wilson, one of my favorite playwrights, his things aren't necessarily trauma-based, trauma not all the time, but they're critiquing <laughs> the existence of Black people in these spaces. And I think that's also important to be able to digest. Fences is about infidelity. What is it like to raise a boy? What is it like to do this? So social justice to me is still exploring the human condition, but also recognizing like, how are you able to build out this empathy? And I think that's the part that I wanna focus on a little bit more is like, let's actually build out this experience and why these people may react the way that they do or know how to navigate in these spaces or give historical context into why I navigate the way that I do today. So that's what I wanna do for theater for social justice. There are gonna be points where there's lynching dramas, but then there's also where I can be like, no, this is actually speaking to a larger conversation about the music industry. This is speaking about a larger conversation into how we look at Black boys and Black girls and how trauma can be induced on us, but not necessarily have to see the trauma in order to recognize something is there. In that respect, then, one thing, and again, something like you said earlier, it's like it's all these ghosts from earlier in the conversation <laughs> coming through the walls. Kind of connected. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess in being a tool of education, if you are triggering people, if you're giving them a tool to learn from it, I think one thing that can be very quite powerful with what you're in, and what you want to do then is giving people the tools to work through that trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably one of the biggest criticisms that come up against, um, you know, I guess trauma porn works is that they don't give people the, the means to work through what they're experiencing and that, that, mm -hmm. that heartbreak that you know that anguish right. and when and like something like fences actually yeah even or even um hidden figures the mm. women who wrote the code to send man them to space yeah one thing it, it really makes me think of is that in those in those films in this case the audience is given the means to learn from the mistakes of the past as it were and so you watch and you go that was that was really sad however I know I could do something in myself yeah. to go, hey, look. And in both of those stories, and you just referenced it again because you keep bringing them up, you focus on women quite a lot. Yes. Um, is, okay, yeah. Is the trauma, as it were, and we used to have trauma delivery here, is the trauma of growing up, as it were, in a single parent household under the care of your mother, is that a trauma you had to work through and is that something that you now see yourself in centering women or is that a, a connection that doesn't exist? No, yeah, yeah, no, that's a very real connection. <laughs> there are things where I was, I remember my mom used to tell us stories about how they didn't want to have two black women working in this wing and directing this wing. Cause they said, that's too, we can't have that. We need to have a man in this space. 
And I said, but if you're if you're the most experienced at your job, I'm confused. Why aren't you the one getting this position? Like, why are you going up against another woman when you both are more qualified than this one man? I was very confused. My mom was irked. And so I think in that moment, I said, yeah, I, I believe in this idea of feminism as like older Keith can put the language to like young Keith. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that is really something because I witnessed like what my mom had to go through and decisions that she had to make, which I might not have understood as a child, but as an adult, I can definitely like empathize a lot more with the decisions that she did make. Um, she did the best that she could do. But I think that Black women also experience um, a lot of bullshit. And so they're able to speak from hold accountable in a space that not many cishet folk are able to do. Um, that's why it's another reason, like I love James Baldwin. He was able to speak from a space of, <laughs> yo, let's hold this mirror up to everybody and then kind of bring it back that way. And then they had to reckon like, oh, this is the ugly parts of America. Let's hold this mirror up. I think black women, uh, people don't like to acknowledge them because they will hold up a mirror to everybody who's caused violence in their lives at some point and nobody wants to be a bad person but people have done bad things so in that case what was your entry into feminism and then what was your entry to intersectional feminism or if they are even at separate points because okay for context for me my entry was again growing up in a single parent household under the care of my mother and the care of my grandmother when she was when she was around and it was going oh wait a minute women aren't paid the same amount as men are i i rely on this woman for an income i would like her to get paid adequate amounts because hey look it might mean the difference in me getting new school shoes but truthfully it was friday night i might get a takeaway if my mom had some extra money and so i wanted women to get paid equal pay there and then later on i learned that there is a um a racial pay gap as well which then compounds that issue so for you did you have something similar to that or yeah i was gonna say you you took my answer right adam oh yeah my bad (laughs) no it's just i relate to that so much yeah no that's beautiful um in that case, I think I've gone through all of the all of the questions. Um, of your pod, of all of your creations, then which is your favorite? Because as a listener, I like I said earlier, I, I really enjoy Dear Reading, even though I shouldn't. Like it's not for me. I'm not the target audience. I can't relate to the experiences of people in Reading in terms of being someone who lives there or visits there because I've never been. However, as a, like a, almost like a a socioeconomic marker, I can relate to a lot of the things that. It happened in Reading as to what happened here in, in London, more specifically Edmonton and Tottenham in North London. And that's weird because when I listen to Rational Anger podcast, I'm like, this is my this is my stuff. Like these are all the things that I I, I relate. So what's of, of your what are your favorites to work on and why? Oh, that 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 one's hard. Um, because I love them for both two different reasons. Um, but I think Dear Reading is my first brain baby. Like I think Dear Reading is the one where I accidentally bring <laughs> a little bit more. Um, so you get to see, you get to hear me joke a little bit more on that one. Like even when I started This American Negro, that was actually very selfish of me because I wanted to get into this academic work and be able to break it down. So if you listen to the earlier episodes, it's very much so like a fully scripted out show. It took me a little bit more to produce it because I had to make sure. Just yep, at okay. me, Marquis, just at me. <laughs> I'm just saying, but it was just like, but that's how I wanted to work that show because I mm-hmm. thought it was important. Because if I can communicate these academic terms and bring it into real world applications, that's what I want to do with that show. Like that one's very much so more pers- purposeful in that. I love having the team now formalized as Rational Anger because it allows me to workshop these ideas in a way that I couldn't before. Um, and I think ideas need to be 
done in conversation, not necessarily in isolation. Um, but Dear Reading is my brain baby. I've been doing that thing for three years. That's been like, that's the first time I ever took a chance to myself. So that Dear Reading is always going to have a special place in my heart. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I think I can probably see that in terms of the creative output, because again, I, I can completely relate to um, the transition that you made between the Dis American Negro and um, Rational Anger, because again, the reason I script is because the people who I would um, kind of workshop these ideas through and the, the research that you do on the show, it, as it's more like a panel, I guess, is the more like you yeah. have like little sections, you go through it and this is the research. Um, I guess it's more like a reading club, I'd say, in, in a weird yeah. way. Um, yeah, one thing about that is that like you have the people there, and, and for me, I work at weird times, so I, I just I just get I get this thing where like I don't always schedule out when I'm going to do some work, but then I'll do it, and then when I'm working by myself, I can go like 14 hours, but then when I'm working with people, it's like you got half hour out of me, yeah. and then I'm done, kind of thing. So like, you're not, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a culture of algorithms changes um, and almost reflects your your own journey. But yeah, I definitely see that 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 passion of of, of the brain baby come through in Dear Reading. Um, but why did you change the name in that case? Is it, is it a case uh, of, I thought it'd be, what, I, what I imagined would be the scenario where you get onto the media circuit and you've got a bunch of white people going, and this is Marquise Richards from, uh, and they look yeah, around. So this American Negro <laughs> is going to still be an iteration because that, that to me is like the purest form. Um, however, as we, as I brought on different people, um, <clears throat> They were like, yo, that's cool, but I'm not like an American Negro. So like, what does this look like in terms of that? So I was very reluctant to change the name. I'll, I'll keep that a bean uh, because I was like, no, it's this American Negro with keys. Like, <laughs> but um, as it came on, we had a Haitian American come on, a Jamaican American, and then a Nigerian person on our space as well. So I wanted to make sure it was a little bit more um, inclusive of them. But th um, this American Negro will come back in terms of like more of a video format, but specifically going to be talking to black academics and breaking it down in their work. So it'd be more of a um, still personal commentary because I want that to exist, but I want this American Ego to really exist in the um, video and um, space a little bit more. So I can actually still script out my stuff, but then also if I need to have like a in-depth interview with somebody's work that I really engaged with, boom, here's the way that I can do it. That's fair. And in that case, was this was this episode conducted by Marquise Devon or Marquise Richards? Uh, you got a little bit of both. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, you absolutely did. Um, what questions about like podcasting stuff? That's definitely Marquise Devon. But I, I'm comfortable with you. Like it's chilling. You get to hear the stupid jokes, and sometimes if I kind of just go on a tangent, like that's where that, that's at. Um, sometimes like when I know I'm really on, I'm just like, yeah. So this is what this da -da 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 -da, and I try to keep it as serious. Um, but that's also not me all the time. So I'm just like, I'm a talk, I'm a chat, I'm a laugh. <laughs> well, this was very fun. Thanks so much for your time, Marquise. Um, for our listeners, if you're still here um, and you got a, a nice big spoonful of pro-blackness, I would like to just say that um, one thing that is very key in, all, in anything that you consider in terms of socialism, uh, Marxism, democracy, in pro-blackness is that these are all experiments and there are different ways in which people engage with these experiments and the reasons why and the outcomes. Um, I mean, even for the case of democracy in the UK, we have a first past the post party system where we have small constituencies 
America has this really weird federal system where they're even trying to make a law to say if someone gets most votes, they should be president. So even in that, in the, in the two of the biggest democratically forwarded countries, and even in look at ancient Greece, where they had you know lotteries as to who should be the next politician, there are different ways in, in which people do this and experiments for it. So if you agree and find um, reasons to support Marquise's forms of expression, Tell them again where they can find you, Marquise. Yeah, um, catch me in the Twitter streets and on or Instagram. That's Marquise Davon, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E-D-A-V-O-N. Um, Marquise Davon across all. You can also find Dear RDG across all platforms and then Rational Anger across all platforms as well. If you just click my page, you'll be able to see all the links to all my podcasts and also the This Is We podcast that I do with some wonderful people from across the pond. So we out here. Yeah, um, you do This Is We with um, former guests uh, on this podcast, um, Alex Holmes and mm-hmm. um, Eads, uh, Eads McKenzie. So Eden's yeah. on it as well. Um, and there are actually some other people on that podcast that I'm hoping to, to reach out to and that get on be, yes. It's going to be very fun. Um, but yeah, thanks again. And oh, again, where can people support you financially if they so choose? Yes, you can either hit me in my cash app if you want to buy me some lunch. So that's dollar sign Marquise Davon, or you can go to patreon.com backslash dear RDG. Um, and there you can get exclusive content and video stuff. We're going to be getting into TikTok, uh, short form video, as well as the podcast. So we're really expanding what dear writing is going to be looking like for a lot more people, especially if we, as we expand our hosts. So we're out here. So that was Marquise. Thank you very much for tuning into this week's episode. Next time we talk about actor network theory or ant theory. Uh, that might sound a little bit weird to you, but what we look at is if, well, how can something symbolize both oppression and freedom at the same time? So tune in then where we talk about actor network theory. In the meantime, if you want to get involved in the conversation about this episode, you can find me on social medias and Twitter as to at ACMOAPod or on Instagram, Twitter, Vero. Um, even Clubhouse as well actually as at Omar Aline you can also find me on Twitter Twitter you can find me on, on YouTube where I'm live streaming we talk about media and politics and current affairs lots of stuff um, I'd love to see you there and get involved in those conversations too you can find me on YouTube as again at Omar Aline until then though make sure to keep looking after yourself um, staying safe and um, yeah look out for yourselves and one another take care stay safe goodbye